Welcome to Deep Breath In, the podcast for GPs from the BMJ, sponsored by Medical Protection. I'm Jenny Rasanathan. I'm a family medicine doctor and clinical editor for the BMJ. And I'm joined today, as always, by Tom and Navjoid. Hi, Tom. Hi, Jenny. Uh, yeah, I'm Tom Nolan. I'm a GP in London and the clinical editor for the BMJ. Hi, Navjoid. Hi, I'm Navjoit Larder. I'm a clinical editor for the BMJ and a locum GP in London. Thank you all for joining us. This episode focuses on COVID-19 in kids. And it was motivated... Um, because of what is happening around the world with COVID in children in the context of a surging Delta variant, particularly in the southern part of the United States, where every day there are new and scary headlines about ICUs filling up, including pediatric ICUs and hospital wards due to the influx of children who've gotten very severe disease from the Delta variant. So is this something you guys are hearing about? What what are people thinking about um, with COVID in kids right now in the UK where you're mm. practicing? Um, well, from my point of view, I'm, I'm completely confused about the whole situation. Uh, you know, I'm seeing, um, unfortunately, I do, I do sometimes still go onto Twitter lurking along and, and, and seeing all these very polarized views about, you know, what is or isn't happening in children. Um, you know, is this a more deadly virus, the Delta, the Delta virus for children, or, or is it not? It does seem in the UK, I'm not really seeing many as many voices raising that concern. Um, and I'm not, you know, I was looking yesterday, last night, trying to prepare something intelligent to say about this. I was, I was trying to find something from like the Royal College of Pediatrics, or you know, the um, you know, some of the major, even the major journals actually, including the BMJ. To, is is there? you know, solid data that, that can tell us the answer to this. And and apart from the, you know, the hubri on Twitter, I'm, I'm struggling for answers, to be honest. So um, all I've got is the ONS, the Office for National, National Statistics in the UK, um, do publish the age, hospital admissions by age. And all they really say is that um, from, yeah, we're seeing similar levels of hospitalizations now in children, from five to twenty-four, well, obviously no, no not children, um, as we did in the January peak. Um, but all they say about that is, I'll quote to you now: the age differences in current rates compared with those seen mid-January likely reflect the age prioritisation of the vaccination program in England. I, th- I think you know from from parents, um, I'm not hearing or seeing a lot a lot of concern about coronavirus in children, and um, yeah, I think most, I think probably rightly, seeing that. It doesn't affect children in the way it does the high-risk population, adults and, and vulnerable adults, uh, and and just feeling that they want to to get on with, with things and, and and not to have uh, restrictions. So that's what I'm seeing anyway. But um, I'm aware there's a large range of feeling about this. But yeah, and I think um, I mean I agree that that's kind of my experience is similar to Tom's and the debate here is much more around vaccination that's become quite a sort of um I don't know contentious and polarized discussion so on the one hand as we've said we've got you know the fact that um 
severe illness and mortality in children with COVID-19 is is pretty low. Um, but on the other hand, children, um, you know, we don't know about long COVID. Children could be, you know, um, involved in transmission. And also there are children who are vulnerable as well, like, you know, vulnerable adults as well. Uh, and, you know, it is it is not easy to, I think, navigate that as a GP and kind of come up with something sensible to say to your patients about kind of where we are really. So I'm definitely looking forward to this episode and kind of learning a bit more um, of a kind of of a sensible take on all of this. I mean, you're right. And this was also the topic of a head to head uh, article that we ran, we the BMJ ran, um, looking at at the same issue, and and you're absolutely right. The UK is an outlier with respect to their vaccination policy for children. So the US and New Zealand are both vaccinating children from 12 and up. Um, And it's widely anticipated that in the United States, kids between 5 and 11 will soon be eligible as well, with many of the mRNA-based vaccine candidates um, submitting emergency authorization applications to the FDA shortly. So... um, can I can I ask you something, Jenny? Because I, 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 I do look look on at what's happening in the US with, you know, it's so different to I think what's happening here in the UK, uh, and obviously you're not in the US at the moment, but you know I know you're very much still linked in with all that. Because yes, the the decisions made around children seem to have been very different around very long school closures, you know, mask wearing from is it two upwards or five upwards in some areas. Um, can you give us an insight into like? that i mean i'm just really interested to hear your views maybe on 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 how that's going down i suppose in the u.s yeah i think the thing you have to understand about the u.s context is that there is no central guidance everything has been kind of decided on a local or state by state basis ranging from school closures, to mask mandates, to vaccine mandates, to um, all of these things with, and unfortunately that's related to politicization of the virus and of whether or not, you know, public health measures are warranted or whether they amount to infringements on civil liberties. Um, but it, it really, really depends where you are. And what we're seeing right now in some of the southern states, including Alabama, Louisiana, and Texas and Florida, is that these states which have not prioritized kind of public health measures are and, and where they have some of the lowest vaccination rates in the country are seeing these massive case volumes with ICUs filling up, as I as I already said, um, and and part of the challenge with this is that it's leading to an enormous amount of confusion on the part of parents and patients, um, people who have a different idea about what is sensible with respect to public health guidance, don't know what to make of what their own individual school or community has decided with respect to how they're going to protect their children or not. Mm. Reminds me a bit of the, I guess, the, the gun debate. You know, no one's going to tell me I can't have a gun. And so I'm going to have a gun, even though I don't really need one. <laughs> is that is that a similar thing? Like, I'm not going to... I'm Where not... toddlers shoot themselves and their parents <laughs> on accident in the bedroom? Yeah, exactly. Okay. Well, also, I think there's, 
I mean, like so much of the decisions in this pandemic, you know, the the trade-offs are, it's all, there's no easy decisions. It's always a set of kind of complex trade-offs. And particularly when it comes to schools and masks, you know, I know that there are people who are worried about the impact that that has on children's mental well-being, on their social development. Mm-hmm. Um, and I mean, they're legitimate concerns. I, I get that. So, um, you know, everybody's kind of, risk analysis of this is going to vary I guess and every that that will be true for parents for for children for I guess the public whether that's at a local level state level whatever um it's not easy so who have you got for us to to hear from Jenny yeah I was just about to say <laughs> so to help us kind of work through this and to wrap our heads around how to think about risk and this trade-off that you mentioned, Navjoy. I spoke to Greg Zimmett. He is professor of pediatrics and clinical psychology um, and in the division of adolescent medicine at the Indiana University School of Medicine. And he has a long history of research on HPV vaccine uptake in teens. So let's turn it over to Greg after this message from our sponsor. When you're a GP, you're not just nine to five. Being a GP is part of who you are, whatever the time of day. So when it comes to your indemnity, you need someone you can turn to at any time. Medical protection is always here for you with expert medical legal advice, including 24 seven in an emergency. We don't just cover patient claims. We're also here to provide support and legal representation when it comes to GMC inquiries, coroner inquests, criminal investigations, and more. Online, we offer risk prevention courses and webinars to keep you up to date with current news, risks, and legislation. We also go the extra mile when it comes to your well-being. With a free counseling service and e-care app, we're helping members take positive steps to better mental and physical health. It's the protection your career deserves, all in one place. And if you're about to qualify or have recently qualified, we can help you take the next step in your career with savings on membership for newly qualified GPs. To find out more, visit medicalprotection.org. Now back to my interview. I'm a professor of pediatrics and clinical psychology at Indiana University um, School of Medicine in the Department of Pediatrics Division of Adolescent Medicine. In general, when parents are making a decision about vaccinating adolescent children versus vaccinating themselves, they tend to be much more concerned about issues of safety. Looking at, for instance, community protection, like herd immunity as a motivation for vaccination. What we found was that that seemed to be less of a motivation for parents vaccinating their children than for adults vaccinating themselves. Mm -hmm. For much of that first year plus of the pandemic, the the public health messaging was, this is a problem for older adults. It's a problem for adults who have underlying conditions that make them more vulnerable 
And what was de-emphasized was, you know, they said, you know, it's generally not a problem for children and adolescents and young adults. Mm. And that was purposeful messaging that was generally accurate, but I think they almost did too good a job of, of downplaying the risk. So that now with this new wave with the Delta variant, when we're seeing many, many more adolescents and young adults hospitalized, getting very ill and some dying, it's hard now to shift the message. Totally. And even, even in the first waves of the pandemic before the Delta variant, you know, if you compare, for instance, in the U.S. meningococcal disease um, in terms of the incidence versus COVID, COVID, you know, bad, bad effects of COVID on adolescents are much more frequent than uh, meningococcal disease. Now, we have really mm-hmm. good vaccination against mm-hmm meningitis, ACWNY in the U.S., and and also a vaccine against meningococcal B is approved. But yeah. even before those vaccines, the incidence of meningococcal disease was relatively low. It's a devastating disease with a high morbidity and mortality rate when it occurs, but it's a rare disease. And we somehow, for whatever reason, from a public health perspective, treated COVID, which is also in the first waves was a caused rare disease in children and adolescents, but pretty devastating when it did happen. We treated it as if it wasn't that big a deal. I think that was probably a mistake. So I think in some parents' minds still, even though the situation has changed, they feel like it's not something that they need to worry about for their adolescents. Right. So this phenomenon of kind of amplifying the safety concerns around the vaccine while de-emphasizing the risk of the disease to kids. Right, right. That that combination is problematic when you're trying to motivate parents to vaccinate their kids. I was hoping to um, talk to you a little bit about your experience working on HPV vaccine and rollout and maybe some of the Um, some of the issues that arose with respect to um, trust and safety around the vaccine and how we have been able to instill that kind of trust in parents and a respect for, or perhaps a better word choice there is understanding about the fact that actually getting cervical cancer is much worse than a potential adverse effect for the vaccine. Yeah. And I think, HPV vaccination is, it's an interesting comparison because in many ways, it's really different from what we're grappling with, with COVID. So because HPV vaccine, in a sense, is a reproductive health vaccine in that it prevents a virus that's sexually transmitted, that made acceptance of it more challenging um, for parents, even though it's it's been framed, it's framed accurately as a cancer prevention vaccine. And, and it kind of leads into some of the other issues when we talk about should adolescents be able to consent to their own vaccination. And with HPV vaccine, that's been uh, an issue that has uh, bubbled up uh, now and then. And, and there's been a fair amount of discussion about whether adolescents can and should be able to consent to HPV vaccination without parental consent. And, you know, as, as we've talked before, you know, there different jurisdictions have different 
laws about this. From a, the point of view of reproductive health, there, there is a way to consider a mature minor statute, which says that minor mm -hmm. adolescents, when it comes to issues like reproductive health, have a right to make their own decisions. So when it comes to STD diagnosis or treatment, for instance, obviously COVID vaccination wouldn't fall within that same sort of basket of reproductive health care. But the, the considerations around adolescence decision-making has led to you know, a lot of discussion and work around, you know, do adolescents have the capacity to make decisions about vaccination? And most of the research suggests they really can, that when it comes to something like vaccination, adolescents are as, as capable as adults in weighing benefits and risks of vaccination and making that decision. One might even argue that, um, you know, if you have a situation, for instance, where an adolescent wants to get vaccinated and a parent doesn't, one could argue, in fact, pretty persuasively, I think, that the adolescent actually has a better grasp of the benefits and risks of vaccination than the parent does. That is fascinating. Um, I wonder about, in some ways, the kind of opposite situation where a teen does not want the vaccine and the parent does. Right. And in particular, what that dynamic means for clinicians, right? Like we have an allegiance to the teen as our right. patient. Uh, on the other hand, many of us strongly believe that vaccines are are appropriate and safe and and you know recommended. Right. And so, how do you handle that kind of scenario? So what I what I I think you have to respect the adolescent's position that if if the parent wants them vaccinated but they adamantly refuse, you can't force them to get vaccinated. That would be grossly unethical, in my opinion. You know. Mm -hmm. But I think the way, the way to address it would be the way any kind of issue like this would need to be addressed, which is through thoughtful inquiry. So using motivational interviewing approaches, um, trying to understand what the adolescent, you know, what, what the patient's concern is, whether it's an adolescent or parent or adult who's, who's resisting vaccination to try in a, in a, um, non-coercive way to, you know, really, it's always best to start with just a strong, what we call a presumptive recommendation and to answer any questions. And, but then if there's, if there's, you know, sort of continued pushback, it really is important as a colleague of mine would say to, to pivot into more of this, what we call, I don't know if you're familiar with motivational interviewing, but this, this sort of engagement and asking questions not with the goal of, of convincing them to change, but with the goal of understanding the source of their hesitation. And, you know, obviously with the hopes that you can provide them with information that will help them to make a different decision, like the decision to get vaccinated in this case. Um, and it might also require some discussion with a parent about how they can most how they can be most encouraging a vaccination and that a kind of head-to-head -head confrontation is often not a good way to help shift people. Um, it, you know, people tend to get very dug in in their stances. We've seen that in the US um, with you know, how polarized 
when vaccination gets so highly politicized and polarized, people get very dug in in their position. They're not particularly responsive to, to data. Absolutely. <laughs> So I found that interesting about the herd immunity being less of a motivation for vaccination for for parents of children than it is for for themselves, um, and yeah, I can I can see I can see that I can see why as well. Um, but I guess I guess then that the what we're hearing there is well then in that case we need to kind of go back to the, the risk to the child, and I think there's a, a fine line there, isn't there, between being really clear about what the risk is and being seen to be deliberately ramping up that risk, which I think in vaccine hesitant groups, you know, they 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 sort of latch onto that and take it as more evidence that you know we're being lied to, which I don't think we are. But I'm, I'm always worried about that. It's not great for building trust, is it? Which is what so much of these conversations mm. are about. Um, I mean, the, I thought that interview was really fascinating, particularly um, the bit about. Uh, adolescence decision making being you know on a par with adults and it does strike me that you know we were talking at the beginning about this kind of very heated debate and discussion we're hearing about um covid in children in general and then particularly on vaccination uh, vaccination in children in the uk and actually one voice that's really missing from all of that is the voice of children and young people and um that's a real a real shame um when you know these are the people who are affected and who um you know will have their own take on you know uh, the mm. safety and the risks and and what they're willing um mm. to take on in order i guess to you know we've often talked about how y- the impact of um the restrictions the, the impact that has on children you know going to school going to university on their social lives and so it's a shame that mm. voice has been missing yeah yeah i agree it is really interesting, this idea around um, herd immunity. I agree with you, Tom. Um, it's funny because as a parent, and obviously, you know, we're biased. We're not just, you know, parents. We're, we're clinicians as well. But I think the interesting piece for me is that if you understand that other people getting vaccinated helps protect your kids, like, I don't really understand how that ceases to become an important argument. But um, I I think even my kids who are three and five, I think if I said to them kind of, you need to take this shot because it's going to keep everybody safe. Yeah. I think that would be a compelling argument. Yeah, I I agree. But I think it's useful to think of other vaccines. Did he mention the meningococcal or others? Now rare conditions that, you know, a handful of of people might might get that in a, in a popular in you know in the country, um, and yes, it's still worth a national vaccination program. So, I think that's useful to think. Actually, although the risk is nothing like it is in the over eighties for, for getting COVID in you know, in children, um, there is still a risk. And you know, you vaccinate your child, or I vaccinate my child for for one rare but occasionally fatal condition. So why not for this one? Yeah, absolutely. And in fact. There is a long history of medicine doing a lot, uh, investing a lot of money, investing a lot of training, developing departments, um, and coming up with brand new technologies about what we think of as kind of 
rare diseases, but when they happen in kids, mm. like, and I'm thinking of congenital heart defects, mm. other things like that. Um, in addition to some of these vaccine preventable illnesses, we go to really great lengths to protect them. Um, so it's interesting to wonder why the same kind of line of thinking might not apply in COVID. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. And going back to your, um, you know, the way you might have that conversation with your children. Jenny, I mean, even if it's, you know, about protecting other people, protecting their classmates, for example, mm -hmm. you know, if they've got someone with, I don't know, asthma or diabetes in their class, you know, that, I, yeah. I think that's, I would find that compelling. As, for, as oh, compelling as um, <laughs> if you have this little vaccine, we'll buy you some sweeties on the way home. Is that? <laughs> I mean, <laughs> I also yeah. find that compelling yeah. as a I, I mean, I, I, I bought some sweeties after my vaccine, so... Uh. <laughs> Yeah, if all else fails, bribery. So one of the things that Greg also brought up is this idea of how the public health messaging at the beginning of the pandemic was very much around downplaying the severity in children. And I think that was a welcome message for so many of us. But perhaps that message is now... Um, way outdated. And so I wanted to speak to somebody else to get a better sense of what is happening right now with the epidemiology of the Delta variant and COVID in children to catch us up and to try to help us think about and and understand uh, better when we read headlines around pediatric ICUs filling up and cases in kids and, and kind of what we can say now or what we need to know about the severity of the variant compared to, um, you know, whether it's just more widely spread in, in unprotected populations. Um, so I spoke to Amanda Carlsvig at the University of Otago. That interview is coming up after this offer for Deep Breath In listeners in the UK. As a GP, you want to ensure your practice is in line with the latest clinical guidance. That's why all NHS staff in England, Scotland and Wales have free access to BMJ Best Practice. With extensive coverage of the most commonly occurring conditions, BMJ Best Practice helps you treat patients with confidence. Structured around the patient consultation, it includes differential diagnosis and treatment algorithms, videos of common clinical procedures, important update alerts for evidence changes, over 250 medical calculators, links to local guidelines, nearly 500 patient leaflets and an award-winning app for access anytime, anywhere. Create your free account today by visiting bmj.com slash ukaccess. Funded by Health Education England, NHS Education for Scotland and NHS Wales. I'm Dr. Amanda Karlsvig. I am a Senior Research Fellow in the Department of Public Health at the University of Otago, Wellington in New Zealand. Thank you. We are so lucky to have you join us today. And I'll start with kind of the big question. As an epidemiologist with a background in clinical pediatrics, how do you and how should we understand the rising pediatric infections with COVID that we're seeing in countries with Delta outbreaks. 
And what do you think is behind this trend? When you want to understand the impact of an infectious disease, it's very useful to think in terms of three factors that will be driving that impact. One is the pathogen itself. Another is the host, in this case, children. And a third factor is the environments. And of course, those are not separate factors. They, um, they can amplify one another. They drive one another. But it's a useful way to think through what could be behind this rise in child cases that we're seeing at the moment. To me, there are multiple factors, but if I had to pick one really important one, it's the increased transmissibility of the Delta variant. That single factor can account for, I think, most of the drive in child cases that we're seeing. A lot of people are asking about severity and um, wondering if this variant is more severe in children. And that's a good question and an interesting one, but I don't think it's the most important question to be asking right now. I think the important question to be asking is how much information do we need to act? And on that point, transmissibility is enough information, I believe, to understand that this is a very serious public health concern for the health of children. It's a slightly counterintuitive idea that, in fact, transmissibility is more concerning than severity, like for like. And that's because it comes down to maths, really. Um, a highly transmissible infection simply will reach more people and allow those um, more severe outcomes to play out that become manifest in a population. Uh, you can imagine an infection that's very severe but not be transmissible is always going to have a limited impact. So that's the reason why we're very, very concerned about this transmissibility and what it could mean for children. I have seen arguments against strict COVID precautions and also against vaccinating kids that because severe disease is rare, the measures aren't worth it or might not seem worth it to individuals. However, we have historically done a lot of work to prevent rare diseases in kids, and we are invested in treating them because even rare things in a whole population add up to a lot of people. That's a, a very interesting question. And of course, this issue of the impacts on children has become very polarized. And um, that's unfortunate because it makes it very difficult to put a, a perspective on it. I think there are two issues to think about here. The first you've highlighted is that um, at the population level, even very rare outcomes are seen frequently. And that's because, again, simply mathematics, a small percentage of an extremely large number is also a large number. So we're looking at potentially a large number of children in each population experiencing these potentially devastating rare outcomes. A second consideration is healthcare and health service resources. Again, even a relatively rare percentage of hospitalizations in children can add up 
to a large number of admissions and that can overwhelm a health system very easily. I don't know of any country that has so much spare capacity in its pediatric systems. The other way we need to change our thinking about COVID-19 in children is that this is now a vaccine preventable disease. It is preventable. And that too changes the calculus in terms of how much morbidity and mortality we might be prepared to accept. When we look at other vaccine preventable diseases in children, they are not necessarily diseases that have a very high morbidity or mortality. And um, perhaps the best comparison that we have at the moment is with a disease that is also highly transmissible, that only rarely causes severe complications, but when it causes severe complications, they are very severe. And that disease is polio. Polio in most child cases is a benign self-limiting disease, but in a very few, it is life-altering and even life-limiting. Nobody has ever proposed that we should live with polio. We all have that memory, I think, from our parents' generation of what that was like in the summers when polio ran through the population. In a recent interview you did with Newsroom in New Zealand, you said prevention is the answer to keeping kids safe in COVID. And clearly vaccines are on most people's minds. As you've said, COVID is now a vaccine preventable disease. So what are you as an epidemiologist who can help to inform public health policy watching in terms of other countries' experiences with COVID in kids? The first thing we've been watching very carefully, of course, is other countries' experience of the vaccines. Uh, we want to know that the vaccines are effective and that they're safe. And the results have far been very, very reassuring in terms of the formal trials and also in terms of countries' experience rolling out the vaccine in their populations. And um, for that one, we're particularly looking at the US where um, I think it's over 7 million children have now had um, the COVID-19 Pfizer vaccine. And um, when you're vaccinating large numbers of children in the millions, any serious complications become will become manifest you can see them and you can quantify them and i think so far i have been very reassured with what i've seen so far it is clear that it is safer for children to get the vaccine than to get the disease we are also looking carefully at other countries experience of community transmission and um, infections in children and uh, how that works at the population level in New Zealand, we've eliminated the virus for most of the pandemic, for most of the time, with occasional outbreaks that we've managed to eliminate once again down to zero. So we don't have that experience here. The things that we want to know about COVID-19 in children are, of course, the, um, the severity indicators. And in particular, we want to know about serious complications. We want to know about the case fatality risk, and that fortunately seems to be very, very low. We want to know about 
the hospitalization risk per case because that's very important for health services planning. We want to know about the post-acute effects of COVID-19. And that's particularly important in children because children have decades of life ahead of them. If they're going to be affected um, in a long-term way by, uh, for example, by experiencing tissue damage in key organs, the heart, the lungs, the brain, um, I believe many other organs that potentially can be implicated, that has enormous implications for our child population. And that too has been a major consideration in our elimination strategy. We have a novel path pathogen with unknown effects. We are not going to let this run through our child population until we understand it better and perhaps not even then. Absolutely. So as you said, prevention is the answer. What else can we think about in terms of prevention? Overall, in terms of prevention, we want to think about the strategy and then we want to think about the objectives of that, of that strategy. How do we achieve the aims of the strategy? And finally, we want to think about control measures and that's the implementation of the strategy. In terms of the control measures, it's always going to be multi-layered protection. Vaccines are one layer in that protection, but we're also looking at um, masks, use of masks. New Zealand has been very slow to, to pick up on the use of masks, but mm. we're hoping that they come into play from now on. And a key point that we really need to address now, and I, I say this for New Zealand, but I think everywhere is air quality in schools. Ventilation is such an important control measure for COVID-19, but it's also such an important public health measure for all sorts of other reasons as well. And we need to think about in particular, the air quality that children experience in schools. When children experience high air quality in schools, they're protected from COVID-19. They're also protected from other infectious diseases that run around schools and they're learning better because they're not sitting in a stuffy room trying to concentrate. So this is such a winner and it's going to be a different way of thinking for us, but such an important public health measure. Was that as helpful to you guys as it was to me? I think so. I think that idea of the transmissibility and being the key question, I think we do get a bit um, focused on, on severity and that, that was really helpful to, to see. But uh, I think for me, it's just, it's complicated, isn't it? And I suppose as a non-epidemiologist and somebody who, who could never be a public health doctor or, or epidemiologist, we, we do need to trust the experts to to make sense of this. And, and, and then it's our job to apply that to our patients. I think that's one of my take-homes from that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and also this idea of the reservoir that we were talking about as well. They'll pass it on to others. Yeah. And that yeah. the denominator is still undefined. Yeah, yeah. I mean, how much testing is happening in the UK right now? Well, I, I think there's good testing capacity now. Mm -hmm. I mean, but, but then... 
you know, every, I'm not a parent, but every parent I've spoken to about testing their children has talked about what a mm. traumatic ordeal it has been <laughs> for them as well. So that's, I guess, something else yeah. to think about. I mean, from a, from a, going back to the consultations or the interactions I'm having with parents is for most parents of children under, you know, or toddler age or younger, mostly aren't really thinking to, to get PCR testing when their child has a fever or cough. Um, hmm. And I think because they, they, their understanding is that, that those aren't really the symptoms of COVID in children and, uh, and that children don't get severe COVID and, and also it's very traumatic for them and their children. And so mm-hmm. for a whole number of reasons, they generally say, no, I haven't done it or I've done a lateral flow test. Well, we won't get back into that <laughs> into that argument. <laughs> so it's all still very confusing, isn't it? And I guess you know, having those conversations with with, with parents and and children, um, you know, I, I can see why why everyone's confused. <laughs> yeah, um, I think it is always a challenge when you're trying to apply, kind of risk-benefit analysis to your own individualized situation. But for advice on how to handle that conversation, at least, and kind of negotiate all of the feelings and attitudes in the room, I let's return to Greg. So I want to distinguish first between a parent or an adolescent who's hesitant and a parent or adolescent who is like hardcore opposed. Um, And those are two very different. And, you know, hesitancy can occur across a very wide spectrum from someone who's just a little bit questioning or, you know, hesitant and concerned to someone who is very hesitant, but still hasn't shut the door. Once someone has shut the door on vaccination, whether it's one vaccine or multiple vaccines, it's a very different situation. And you're, it doesn't mean you don't try to understand them. You absolutely should. But the chance of, of helping them to shift is pretty small. Um, so what, where the information I think can help is isn't so in the context of the relationship with the provider. So particularly providers who see patients over time of that continuity of care, it's one of the real advantages of that kind of medical model is people get to know their GP or their pediatrician. And there's a relationship with the child, with the parents, with the family. That is can be really powerful. And motivational interviewing and provision of information in the context of that can really make a difference. So, and. And part of motivational interviewing is can be provision of information, but it's sort of the way it's provided. So one of the techniques, for instance, would be, you know, first to elicit from a person what what they understand and what they've heard about, you know, where their concerns come from and what their thoughts are, and then to say, would it be okay if I shared with you some things that, that I know about the vaccine? And so by asking permission, nearly everyone will say, oh, of course, you know, I, I want to hear what you have to say. You're, you're my doctor, you're my nurse or whatever. Um, but by, by phrasing it that way, it's, it's a way of, you know, not sort of foisting the information on them. You've created, a, you've created kind of a partnership, right? So 
they've given you permission. And by virtue of them giving you permission to share information, they're more likely to be open to hearing that information. And then the infor the infor it's important that the information doesn't just involve negating their sources of information, you know, like immediately saying, oh, you can't trust what you read on Facebook or, you know, I don't know, Twitter, you know, is a, is a sewer, you know, it may be a sewer, but that's not a helpful way to, to respond, right? So what you want to do is to talk about, to respond with accurate information that you have without belittling what they've heard and offer and offer a parent or an adolescent, um, you know, some links to credible sources of information and say, you know, this is, this is what I know. And, you know, let me, you know, if you if you're interested, I can provide you, um, you know, a pamphlet or uh, a website where you know you can get really good information about this. So I think that's it's not just the information itself; it's sort of how it's packaged, how it's delivered. Um, but the information is essential. Uh, using visuals can be helpful. Um, you know, there's a I've thought a lot recently about this concept of what's called omission bias. And um, what, omission bias is this notion that people are more willing to make a decision not to do something, like because they're omitting something, it, it doesn't feel like they've taken responsibility for the decision. But if you commit a decision, like I'm going to get my child vaccinated or I'm gonna get myself vaccinated, then if something bad should happen, it feels like you're responsible for that. Now, so, so what that makes me think of also is, is making sure that we help people understand that deciding not to get vaccinated is an active decision. It's not a decision that's omitted. It's in fact an active decision. And I, I think we have to be, you know, you have to be careful because you don't want to kind of go on a guilt trip with, you know, with people. But, but it's important that people recognize that if they make a decision not to vaccinate, you know, that's why, you know, you can't ever say that vaccines are 100% safe because they're not. Nothing is 100% safe getting out of bed isn't 100% safe. I mean, everything has a certain degree of risk. <laughs> yeah. You get out of bed, you trip over a slipper and you hit yourself, you know, hit your head on the bed frame and you die. You know, anything, right? If you don't get out of bed, you know, you develop, you develop bed sores, you get infected and you die. I mean, everything has yeah. a risk. And so, what you know, that's why I like to say it's much safer and, 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 and less risky to get a vaccine, to choose to get a vaccine than to choose to not get a vaccine. Because I, and so I think that kind of, that kind of messaging and communication can be helpful. That, I mean, that makes, that makes really good sense. And I also really appreciate your suggestion around using a visual. Sometimes I think, you know, doctors are, are not, as far as studies go, are not that great at trying to give patients a clear understanding of risk and how they can understand risk. And that's something, right. you know, we talk about a lot on the podcast and as, and at the BMJ, we talk about that in the education pages is how do we yeah. give 
clinicians a greater sense of probability, a greater understand of, uh, understanding of how those probabilities and risks apply to yeah. our patients. And it's, it's yet another step of translation to then share yes. that information with patients. That's right. And I would say my wife and I, and my wife is also a psychologist and we collaborate on some of the vaccine research, but we give talks together sometimes about, you know, ways to communicate risk and, and how visual representation is really important. Avoiding probabilities and, you know, you know, one in a million or, and particularly avoiding words like rare or very rare, because what, what I, understand rare or very rare to mean could be completely mm. different from what another person does. Um, and so those aren't really useful, uh, but you, you know, there are all sorts of infographics that I've seen that are really great at, at just bringing home the, the reality of things. Like, like the fact that um, let's say in Florida, something like 90, seven or 98% of the people hospitalized with COVID are unvaccinated. Mm. So you can show that graphically and that helps to show how well the vaccine mm -hmm. works, particularly with a background of less than 50% of the population being vaccinated, fully vaccinated, and yet almost 100% of the hospitalized patients with COVID are unvaccinated. So, you know, I think those kinds of things can be shown visually in, in that, that are very dramatic. Um, and, you know, for, for the hardcore anti-vaccine, anti-COVID vaccine people, it makes no difference. I mean, I've seen, I, see, I have a colleague who's on LinkedIn who, who has made it his job to refute misinformation. We don't think of LinkedIn as being the same kind of source of misinformation as Facebook and Twitter and YouTube, but it's, there's a, a lot of really, really awful people on LinkedIn posting gross misinformation. And I know a number of people who do a really great job of refuting it, but it makes no difference. It's still important that they refute it because there are going to be some people who read it, who read the misinformation, who haven't made up their minds yet and will be influenced by, by it. So it's really important that it gets refuted, but it's, um, it's kind of depressing. So I like the illicit share illicit approach. I think that was in the um, the vaccine hesitancy article that was out in, on, in a BMJ a few, a few months ago. Um, quite straightforward. I think al I can almost remember that without having to look it up. Just remind me, Tom, what they what it was. Oh, oh. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so you ask an open ended question of the the patient uh, about their views on on, on on something, and then you uh, offer. Or ask permission to share your own expertise or your own um, yeah expert expertise on on the topic, and then you ask them again another open-ended question. So it's uh, less. I'm now going to tell you right. what to do, or, or that I'm right, and it's uh, yeah, it seems it seems a straightforward way of uh, of doing it. I I think this idea of um, not getting vaccinated being an active choice is something that um, reminded me of so many people who I've had this conversation with and really made me wonder if there was another way that I could have approached that conversation. Um, 
it seems like something that should go without saying, but somehow isn't. Like the number of people who I remember being concerned about vaccine side effects and I don't know. What do you guys think? Do you think that this that do you think it's it's helpful to kind of remind people or kind of try to counter this omission bias? It's tricky in the context of the COVID vaccine because it's well it's we we don't have that here for children yet, but uh, mm. the sense I get from um, parents I've spoken to is that that there isn't just a decision to um, do that. Will they want it for their kids or will they not? It's also um, a wait and see as well. Like I, I, I think I do, but I want to wait and until there's a bit more um, mm. safety data that emerges, even though a lot of the safety data so far has looked very um, promising. And I think that the only the sort of slight flag with the Pfizer um, study in adolescence was about my, a few cases of myocarditis, but very rare. Um, so, so I guess it can compared to more established vaccine programs that are going on. There's that kind of factor into it as well. Of um, mm. there's the kind of option to have it now, not have it, or just have it mm-hmm. later. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's 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 so hard, doesn't it? I feel like. There's no sort of single magic bullet. Be, we're always trying to look for a, a single solution to, to a problem, but it feels. In, in, it, I'm thinking more about um, vaccine hesitancy for the MMR and other sort of childhood immunizations. There always seems to be such a wide range of reasons why the, the parents are unsure or, or against it, uh, and often there isn't really a solution but you know the, the best shot you've got a solution is to understand what those reasons are um and and that's all we need to do and there's no um there's no kind of magic to it or there's no no, no single solution except falling back on our trusting relationship exactly our longitudinal relationship <laughs> with our patients that you know everyone has perfect access yeah. to all the time <laughs> yes. yeah of course <laughs> cradle to grave but um only by uh, um online consultations <laughs> <laughs> you never actually heard my voice um, or see me yeah you know another thing i find so interesting about talking about covid and kids is our tendency to want to compare it to something that we know or something we've seen in the past you know um whether that's comparing it to polio to try to make the case that this is not something we should be prepared to live with in an endemic way, comparing it to flu because we think it's inevitable we'll be living with this in in an endemic way, comparing it to meningococcal disease being a vaccine-preventable illness that we've had to kind of have this conversation about, and then obviously the HPV vaccine and um, HPV-linked cancers as well. And it just makes me think, I mean, no one can predict the future, but I'm just so curious, like, what this is going to turn out to be. You know, what what will we look back on this and say mm. um, it was most like, or how how should we be thinking about this mm. right now? Yeah, it's so interesting. And also so interesting, you know, that we've had interviews from uh, experts based in countries with two de- very different approaches. So New Zealand and the U.S. are 
doing things quite differently. Um, and it'll be interesting, as you say, to sort of see which approach kind of um, seems most sensible over the long term. think that's it for our episode today thank you so much for tuning in and listening thank you to amanda Kalsvig and thank you to greg simmett for joining us on the podcast this time and please if you enjoyed this episode or other episodes like us write us a review subscribe in any of your podcast listening apps And we'll see you again next time. Thanks so much, Tom. Thank you. See you next time. Thanks. Thank you, Jenny. Well, and well done, because I know it's like almost midnight in um, Auckland while we're recording. So thank thank you. (laughs) (laughs) Good night. That's all. Bye for now.